Welcome to 20% Time, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Titan, a web consultancy based out of Chicago, but entirely remote with employees across North America. We specialize in Laravel, which uh, hopefully you know if you're listening to this as a PHP framework, which we're often pairing with any number of JavaScript frameworks and libraries. I'm your host, Dave Picking, and this week I'm joined by John, one of our lead programmers at Titan. Uh, how's it going, John? It's going well, Dave. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, John, for people who don't know you, who don't follow you on Twitter, or who haven't met you yet, uh, what should they know? Can you say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is John Bonacorsi. I'm a lead programmer at Titan, um, where we work on client projects of all shapes and sizes. And I also take point on some of our internal products like Field Goal and more recently Sauce. And you have uh, an adorable dog. You, I do. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully he stays very quiet during this. Yeah. Uh, he could be a visitor. That's fine. We haven't tried <laughs> yeah. pets on the podcast yet, but at Titan, that seems like an eventuality at some point. Yeah, it probably is. Okay. So this week, uh, John, we've got you on because we are sort of revisiting a, I think a fairly popular uh, blog post that, that you wrote two years ago uh, at Titan. Uh, maybe not revisiting, but we're sort of coming back to this topic because, um, well, honestly, it comes up on our Slack <laughs> somewhat often. Sure. We see people talk about it on Twitter every so often. And that's the idea of class-based model factories in Laravel. But I want to like roll back a little bit before we get that deep and start at square one with what is a model factory exactly? And why would a Laravel dev need to know about it? Yeah, I think the easiest way to explain what a model factory is, is just to kind of give like a little brief example. Sure. So let's say that you're building an app in Laravel and it's a blog app. And so, you know, you might have a user's table and a user's model, and you're probably going to have a blog or a post table and a post model. Um, and, you know, and maybe your post table has some columns in it, like a user ID to store whoever wrote the blog. Maybe it has a title column that's a string. Maybe it has a content section where you're going to write the actual blog content. And then maybe it has something like a Boolean column called is published, and that's set to either true or false, depending on whether or not the blog post is published. Um, so if you have those tables, and then let's say you're going to write a test in Laravel, and you want to write a test that says, when a user visits a blog post that is unpublished, they should only be able to see it if they are the author of the blog. So okay. you don't want other people seeing posts that are unpublished. So if you're trying to write a test like that, you know your test is probably going to do something like go to a URL within your app for that blog post. And it's going to make sure that if you're not the author, that maybe you get redirected to the homepage or maybe get an error screen or something like that. And so, you know, for that test, obviously you need a blog post to exist in the database. And yep. so the question becomes, okay, well, how do I get a blog post into the database? Um, so you could do a couple different things there, right? You could just make one in your local database and then point your test to the local database. And that would work just fine. Although it wouldn't really scale that well. So, for instance, you know, if you eventually were just playing around in your local install and you deleted the blog post, um, then your test would fail. Yeah. Your test really shouldn't fail because, <laughs> you know, that's not your test job for you to have gone in and created local data. Right. So this question in Laravel kind of becomes like, okay, well, then how do I get for my test local data that is, you know, perfectly set up for that individual test? And that's really where, where model factories come in. Uh, they hook up directly to your, to your models to kind of create fake data for your database. Um, and they work hand in hand with a, another PHP, uh, package called Faker. And so, you know, for instance, in our example there where we have a title column and a content column, um, you know, odds are that those are required fields in the database. Um, however, every time you make one of these, you might not want to fill those out, right? You might want, not want to have to make a title or, or some content because for the tests that we just described with, you know, checking unpublished 
blog post, nothing really matters except that that blog post is unpublished. It doesn't really matter what the title is. It doesn't matter what the content is. So model factories work hand in hand with Faker to kind of generate that data that you need on the fly as well. So, you know, if your blog needs a title, but you don't necessarily want to write that title out, it'll generate a fake title for you. It'll generate fake content for you. And then you can kind of just override the specific fields that you need to override. In our case, you know, is published. You could set it to true or false. And then uh, one of the I wanted to mention was just that uh, factories also have these concepts called states. And so, for instance, let's say in 100 different tests, you had to make an unpublished blog. Well, you know, you could overwrite that is published column in, in every time you do that. Right. But then the problem becomes, OK, what if one day you rename that is published column? Uh, you know, then, then you have to go through all of your tests and update that column name, which is just unideal. So states allow you to make a state specific to that model factory. So, for instance, you could make an unpublished, an unpublished state. And then um, in that state, in the model factory configuration, you can say, OK, when you have an unpublished state, set that column to false and then you're good to go. So that's that's kind of the basic idea. They're kind of like little Lego blocks for just building one off um, pieces of content for your database. So seems that one of the overall goals is to make I want I don't know if this is the right word, but maybe you can maybe you can help me with this. Is it to make your test setup as simple as possible? Is it to make it as reliable as possible? Yeah, I guess is it it's neither of those it, two. <laughs> no, I think it's all of them. I think it's just to make it as easy as possible. You know, this is okay. just this is just a question like I mentioned. Like, how do you so somehow you need to get data in that database, yeah. right? And uh, just the easiest way to do it, or at least the way that Laravel has done it up to this point, is just is using model factories. Like I mentioned, you could do it a bunch of different ways. You could use an export of a production database, which you know there's a lot of problems with that. But you could make local data on the fly. You could just use a raw DB insert and insert some data. But all those things are kind of you know inelegant. So model factories just kind of step in and say, hey, here's an easy way to do this, and uh, it, it works quite well. Does that help at all with readability or speed of running tests or anything like that? Uh, I can't really speak to the speed, although they're they're quite fast. Um, I don't think there's any speed problem with yeah. them. Uh, yeah, readability uh, is certainly it helps a lot, a lot because they they again they sync directly into your models. So there's always like a not always, but typically if you're writing a test, there's a model that corresponds with your model factory. So they kind of go hand in hand there. So it definitely helps to have you're already using classes that you're familiar with, which is which is always a benefit. And so we referenced this earlier, but you wrote a great blog post uh, about. Uh, model factories, and in it, you you talk about how, uh, at least at the time, you felt. Mm -hmm. And so, if, if you if this has changed since then, we can we can <laughs> go off course. That sure. uh, model factories, it doesn't take long before they begin to feel underpowered. Is I think is a direct quote from you. Sure. Uh, what do you mean? Do you do you first of all is that still do you still think that's a, that's that's accurate? And if so, uh, what do you mean by underpowered? Yeah, you know that's interesting. I think that I think it's fair to call them underpowered. Um, if I was writing that blog today. In 2020, yeah. I would probably use a different word. I'd probably use verbose. Mm, um, okay, that's I, interesting. I, yeah, I think they're just, they're great. But as you kind of start working on apps that are, are less trivial or have more complex setups, uh, model factories just kind of become very, very verbose. Uh, and Laravel as a whole is is pretty elegant. And you kind of get, you kind of get like spoiled by how fluent <laughs> Laravel is and how and how everything kind of reads like a sentence. Yeah. And when you work in the Laravel with, for a while with things like Eloquent and stuff like that, you, you get very kind of used to almost guessing at methods that you can do and everything just kind of reads like a sentence, which is which is a really powerful thing in Laravel. And I think it's a lot of things. I think it's one thing that people really gravitate to. Uh, and I think model factories don't quite have that. They feel a little bit less polished. They feel more like a, a screwdriver and less like a drill. And so I think that is my kind of biggest problem with them. And one of the ways that you have proposed sort of addressing this is the idea of class-based model factories. So that's right. 
Um, what does that mean and why that approach? Yeah. So if I could kind of go back a little bit, I'd like to say that, you know, the kind of the reason that this idea came into my mind was that, and I talk about this a little bit in the blog, was that the idea that uh, tests often get top heavy. And so if you think about your tests and most programmers, when they start writing tests and even, you know, when they're years into it, there's this concept of arranged act, act assert. And that's that your tests kind of have this format of at the top, you kind of create your world, which is the arrange step. And that's when you're adding all the data you need or doing any kind of setup you need. And then there's the act step, which is when you're doing some kind of action. And in the concept that we previously discussed, that would be like going to the URL of that blog post and, you know, just hitting that up via an HTTP request. And then there's the final section, which is the assert section, which is where you, you know, assert that in that case, maybe you assert that you got redirected or you assert that you hit an error. And what you'll find happens as you begin to work with model factories is that your that arrange step, that first step there often gets to be maybe three or four times longer than the other two steps combined. Mm. So in my experience writing more complex apps, I would look at my tests and you know, the act step would be one or two lines. The assert step would be maybe three or four sometimes, sometimes longer, but usually maybe around three or four. And then the first step, which was the arrange step, would be like 20 lines. And uh, that, that, that was a big problem in my mind. One, because, you know, for a lot of people, the tests sometimes double as like a living documentation. And uh, it's really important to me that someone can come in and look at a test, whether they've written it or not, whether or whether they wrote it, but they wrote it a year ago, and they can very quickly kind of see exactly what that setup step looks like. Because in reality, in my opinion, the setup step is the, the least important part. It's the part where you should be spending the least amount of your attention. You know, you should be looking at what is this thing actually doing, and then what is the result of this thing. And the setup step there is really just there to kind of do what you need to do. But you, sh- in my mind, you shouldn't spend too much time there, and it should be very easy because that's your first gateway into the test. So. If you kind of get tripped up there, you get stuck there, uh, it can be daunting. It can maybe cause you to write, not write tests. It can maybe cause you to not want to fix a test that's broken that you didn't write. Uh, there's a lot of problems there. And so, you know, when I was kind of thinking about this and when I kind of came up with the idea of, of class-based model factories, I was really trying to solve that problem there, mm. which is, you know, how big that arrange step gets. And going back to what we talked about before with, you know, how things should be fluent and kind of read like a sentence. Uh, that was kind of my goal, like to make it more like everything else in Laravel is, where it's just very fluent. And if someone was coming into a test, and instead of getting greeted with this 20-line monstrosity of you know relationships and different model factories and creating all these things, if they could kind of just read that test setup like a book, like a sentence, uh, that would be the most ideal scenario. And you know, this isn't exactly a, a new problem. Uh, people have been trying to solve this problem in different ways, either consciously or subconsciously. I bet you every developer who's written tests that's listening to this podcast right now has tried to solve this problem in some way. Um, but they all kind of have their own unique problems. Like, I, I, for instance, you know, usually when a developer is writing a test and they they notice that the setup section is too big or something like that, or or that it's you know it's being used in a couple different places, the first thing that they'll often try to do is put it in the setup method of the test. And if you're unfamiliar with that, it just means that the setup method is a method that runs before every single test in a file runs. So we'll try to like pick up that chunk and then they'll try to put it in the setup method, which is which is just fine because it, you know, it works for a lot of things and that's great. However, then they'll get to the point later on where um, you know, they, uh, they want to use it in a different file or you know, a different test. 
And all of a sudden you go, okay, well, the, the setup method is unique to that test file. So if I want to use it over here, I can't do that anymore. So then they go, okay, you know, maybe I'll make it a private method on the base test class. And that way it's used globally across all tests and I can do whatever I want with it. I can call it when I want. And that's all well and good too, except that you end up over time with a test case file, your base test case file that's like littered with all these private methods that are named very, very specifically and they're very long. And then you kind of have ones that are almost the same, but slightly different. And that gets really confusing. So then another thing that sometimes people will do is then they'll go, okay, well, I'm going to put these in cedars. I'm going to take all this, uh, you know, this, this factory setup and I'm going to shove it in the cedar and then I'll call that cedar at the start of a test. And, you know, that works okay enough sometimes too, but my kind of core problem with all those solutions is that, you know, when you're like, uh, your kid and your, your mom tells you to clean your room and it's just like a, it's a real big mess uh, and you're like, oh my God, I can't, yeah, yeah I can't possibly clean this. No. So you, you take all your toys off the floor and you shove them on your bed and then you put the, you know, the comforter over the bed and <laughs> it's real lumpy looking, but your floor is clean and you go like, Hey, this is a clean room. This sounds like you're drawing on personal experience here, John. Yeah. I'd like to apologize to my mom. <laughs> saying this, but, uh, <laughs> But, you know, that's at least that's the way I did it for a long time. And, you know, and your, your mom walks in and she goes, well, I guess the floor is clean, but your bed's really lumpy. Right. And that's that's kind of the problem that I have with um, those methods that I just previously described is that they, they felt like less of solving the problem. And they felt more like uh, you were just pushing the problem so, um, somewhere else out of sight. And, you know, after you've been programming for a while, you just you're, you're those things, those types of things are very obvious to you. And they're just they just feel very, very brittle and they just don't feel right. Like I never just want to shove a problem somewhere else. Uh, so that is, you know, when I kind of looked at all those methods that people were doing and suggesting, uh, they didn't feel quite right. And uh, so that's when I came up with this kind of class-based model factory idea. And the whole, you know, objective there was just to uh, have a solution that gave you a high amount of flexibility, but was also very fluent and you could read it really well. And, you know, it could just do a lot of different things. And, um, and and so, you know, putting classes into the mix was just was just a natural evolution of that. Because once you start using classes, uh, you have things like state, you know, through like public or protected properties on the class. You have fluent methods that you can write whatever method you want. So, you know, it just felt like a very natural evolution. So I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I when I hear about some cool new idea or technique, I'm immediately thinking, "Oh, well I need to use this on everything mm -hmm. everywhere. This is my this is the new this is the new thing that's going that's going to solve, you know, whatever problem I might have." Does every model factory need a class-based counterpart in your opinion? No, no, it definitely it definitely doesn't need one. Um and you know, I I, I want to talk a little bit about like, you know, we we just kind of say, you know, that class-based model factors are really just simple classes that have methods that are fluent and state and stuff like that. And I really want to like double down on just how simple that is. Like, you know, sometimes you hear a new phrase like class-based model factor. You're like, oh my God, this whole, this is some brand new concept. Right, it's so right, confusing. Right. And it's really, it's really not. Um, class-based model factories are literally just classes that have methods. And those methods internally just use uh, regular Laravel model factories. So, for instance, in the one in the in kind of the version that we described of having like a blog post or a post model on a blog, you know, app. Yeah. Um, you would then have a post uh, class or maybe called post factory or something like that. And that would just have a method on it called create. And inside of that create method, you would just create a model factory like you normally would. And that you might kind of hear that and think like, 
oh man, that's well. Then what's the point of that? You know, that doesn't that you could just create a model factory like normal, and and that's true. But where the kind of true power comes in is is through that fluency that I described, which is that because it's now wrapped up in a class, kind of like wrapper, um, you can add any kind of method that you want. So for instance, um, you know, let's say that later on in that blog post app, you you create a comments uh, table to have posts can have comments on them, right? Uh, and then, and you have a test where you want to say, okay, um, a post for some reason can only have 10 comments. And if someone tries to add an 11th comment, uh, we're going to have an error. Okay. So at that point, um, you know, normally what you'd have to do in like a normal model factory at that point is you'd have to say, okay, at the start of my test, I'm going to create a post model factory. And then below that, I'm going to create three comment model factories and I'm going to associate them with the, uh, post. So I'm going to have, you know, the post, the three comments, blah, blah, blah. And that is fine. Again, like that's not, this is a very kind of trivial example. So that's not really that bad. But in a reality, in a, a real app and something like that, it might be more complicated. But, you know, the problem is one, that's maybe three lines of code more. And you know, there's some ways around that, but it's probably about three lines of code more in a lot of cases. Uh, and then, like, you know, you might forget how to even, you know, in the moment, forget how to associate those comments with the post. Like, I, you know, for me personally, I've been developing Laravel for like five years now or, or longer. And, um, you know, I'll still, when I'm writing tests or setting up some kind of model, I, I forget the relationships and how they all combine. You know, there's attached, there's detached, there's yeah. save, there's save many. I, I still get them wrong. Sometimes I just have to guess. And um, it's honestly, it's just, it just can be confusing. And it's just one of those things that your brain doesn't do all the time. And so you just kind of forget. And so um, kind of what class-based model factories like to do is instead of, you know, creating the post model factory and then creating the three comment model factories, you could just go to your post class-based model factory, which again is just a simple class, and you could add a method called with comments. Um, and that maybe that method would take in a number. So you could say three. And that would then when you then when you call the post factory later, you could say, okay, I need a post with comments. You pass in three, and then you say create. And then behind the scenes, that class has kind of stored that number three as state. And then when you finally call the create method, uh, it says, okay, well, when we create this post, we also need to create three comments. And again, very, very trivial example. But as you begin to develop more apps where maybe you have five or six or 10 relationships, um, that becomes you know, very, very helpful. And so you know, to kind of answer uh, you know, your original question of, of why you know, does every single model factory need a class-based alternative? The answer is no. I would say that most of the time, you're going to want to look for the ones that have a lot of those relationships that I just described. So if you're if you're often doing a lot of different setup, like every time you create a post, you know you're creating comments. Maybe you're giving it a topic. Maybe you're doing you know whatever you may be doing. You're going to kind of want to look at your major core models that are being used a lot, and then a blog app that would probably be your post. And those are the ones you're often going to want your class-based model factories for. But uh, you know I will say this: in working with this kind of system in my side project um, and and some projects with Titan. Um, more often than not, it ends up being more models that need a class-based alternative than, than I think there will be. And so kind of just as a blanket rule, I've personally have started creating one every single time just to keep things consistent. But I'd say, you know, does everyone need one? No, for sure not. It would, you know, you might have a user model that's very simple or something like that. Or if you have a blog app and you have a topic model, that's probably going to be very simple. You might not need it for that. But um, just to keep things consistent, I kind of have them going that direction. In your eyes, are there any downsides to to doing this? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's always downsides. Uh, the One of the big things to me is that, you know, and this is going to vary by developer to developer, but I'm always cautious to do things in 
not the Laravel way or not a common way that's common amongst the community. So anytime that you are doing something that is kind of abstracting something else that Laravel does or something that's kind of like a new concept, uh, I always want to take a step back and like really evaluate that and say, you know, is this really something that I, you know, that I want to do? Because right. that means that when a new developer comes in or someone picks off your work or something like that, um, they might be confused by it. They might not even know what's there. They might just start using normal model factories, not realize that, you know, other tests are not doing that. So, you you know, in my mind, that that is a fear. And, you know, when I was kind of working on this concept, um, you know, I, I did evaluate, evaluate that and I came to the conclusion that it was the trade-off was worth it. But I think that's definitely something to consider is that, you know, you are pulling yourself out of that world. Um, another thing that I've sometimes have heard is that uh, just from like talking to people on Twitter, that speed is sometimes a concern. Mm. I personally haven't hit that. Uh, it makes sense to me why it could be, but I haven't hit that issue personally. And I have, you know, I'm running a couple projects that use this concept that have, you know, over 600 or 700 tests. And most of those tests hit the database directly with model factories and, uh, and they run in a couple seconds. So, you know, again, everyone, you know, there's probably someone out there listening that, well, I have, you know, 10,000 tests and they, you know, you know, it's like, okay, well, that might, I'm not saying that they couldn't become a problem over time, but in my experience, at least working on apps with a solid amount of tests, speed has not been a concern. But yeah, I'd say those are probably the two biggest like reasons you should take pause and think about it. So this idea, the idea you know, th- this whole idea that you have here, you, you talked about this in the blog post a bit, started during a conversation back at the 2017 Titan onsite, right? And then mm-hmm. you wrote a blog post about it two years ago. So we sort of alluded to this a bit, but what has changed for you about taking this approach in the two years since? Is it just you've used it more and you've maybe refined it or has there been any sort of like major like, oh, well, you know, I actually think about it this way now as opposed to this way? Uh, nothing major has changed. And and I appreciate bringing up that this came up during a Titan like onsite because I, I do want to very quickly mention that you know, I've, as I've been talking to this podcast, for the sake of simplicity, I've said, you know, when I was thinking about this concept or when I was working on this concept, but in reality, um, on my first really day at Titan was actually at Titan Onsite, which is where we all get together in person. And literally the first night that I worked at the company and I was all together with everyone in person in Chicago, um, I was in a room with uh, Caleb and Daniel, who were the previous hosts of this podcast, um, Jose, who's one of our other lead programmers, and um, Marge, uh, who, you know, does basically everything for Titan. And uh, we ended up having just this, just kind of by luck, it had been something I was thinking about. And it turned out that like everyone else in the room had been thinking about it too. And um, we ended up having this long conversation. So when I say, you know, I came up with this or this concept is mine, it was built on a lot of conversations that happened during that time. So I do want to kind of mention that. Um, but in terms of what has has changed, uh, not, not too much, honestly. I still basically follow the kind of same structure that I outlined in the blog. Uh, but I'll say that if anything has changed, it's probably the community has changed. Uh, since then, I know that there have been several uh, third-party packages that have sprung up that kind of uh, just handled this topic as well. Uh, some of them may even mention the blog post that I wrote in the readme, so I think it kind of like inspired a few. And then there's some others that might have just been some kind of parallel thinking. But uh, there's a few of those. I know one's called Laravel Factory Enhanced. There's one called Poser that just came out. There's one called Laravel Factories Reloaded. So a lot yeah. of these little things have kind of sprung up over time. And um, I'd say if anything, if I was starting a new application, which I haven't done in quite some time, but if I was starting a new app and I wanted to kind of use this concept, I might investigate using one of those packages instead of hand rolling my own way. 
Uh, I'm not saying I would definitely do that, but I would certainly consider it. And I've looked at some of those packages and they look very promising. Uh, so I would probably, I would probably consider using one of those. Yeah. I was, I was just about to ask you if somebody was interested in exploring class-based model factories, what's the first step that they should take? And sounds like you are suggesting maybe check out one of these, one of these packages, but is there a particular use case that you can think of? Like if someone's listening to this and they've heard you talk about it and like, yeah, this sounds kind of interesting. Is there a particular sort of use case in, in, in a kind of app where you're like, yeah, that's really compelling. That's just such an obvious win that someone should try it. I don't think there's a particular app that comes to mind or a particular type of app. Yeah. But I, I mean, I would say like, you know, anytime the, the good thing, like I mentioned earlier, is that your tests are going to, it's going to be very clear that your tests are top heavy. Like if you open right. up a file and your first setup step is 20 lines and your other two steps are four lines combined, that to me, that's a problem. And that's kind of your first gut, you know, clear sign, red flag that maybe this is a thing to consider. Uh, if you don't have that problem and all your things are, you know, two lines and your model factories are simple and it's fine, then, then great. Uh, maybe don't consider it at all. Maybe not worth the extra overhead. But yeah, if you have top heavy tests, then definitely consider this. Okay. Um, so that is actually about all I have for questions for you today. So I have one last question, which is, is there something that you wish I would have asked you about that I didn't? No, I think that um, one of the things that I just probably wish I had mentioned uh, is that, and this is not not private knowledge but also not extremely well known yet but that laravel actually and you can see it in like the uh, i say it's not private because you can see it in some commits that are being done there's some stuff happening kind of behind the scenes in in taylor and and laravel internal that i think they're actually working on a Mm. direct implementation of this in laravel core uh it's a fairly substantial change to the factory system obviously so uh i don't think it's going to come out until maybe laravel 8 or something like that but I do know just based on things I've read on Twitter and uh, looking through some of those commits that Taylor had made a couple of weeks ago, that it looks like kind of a, a first party, you know, built in Laravel version of this is, is happening. So I'd say, you know, keep your eye out for that. Um, I definitely plan on if that does happen, I plan on kind of releasing a, a new blog post or some kind of guide for that just to kind of hand off from the previous one. But um, I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for for joining us today on 20% Time. I really appreciate it. Uh, John, uh, do you have a Twitter you want to direct people towards or where, should, where can people find you online if you want to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I'm, I'm on Twitter at I'm John Bond, which is the letter I-M and then J-O-H-N-B-O-N. Um, you don't have to follow me. I don't, I don't say too much. But um, <laughs> I'd say uh, if you're going to look at me anywhere, I, I I blog not as much as I would like, but uh, as much as I can on the Titan website, which is exactly what we're talking right now. So, you know, take a look at my uh, Titan blog posts if any of those interest you. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm around. You can you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dave.